When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week, joining me on the Radio Times sofa is the comedian who has been a staple on our televisions for almost two decades, Jack Whitehall. He broke into telly aged just 19 while presenting E4's Big Brother's Big Mouth, but he soon became a household name as a panellist on the likes of Would I Lie to You, 8 Out of 10 Cats and Mock the Week. His stand-up career has been glistening with multiple sellout shows and he's also made his mark in the world of TV and film, starring in everything from Fresh Meat, Bad Education and most recently Apple TV's The After Party. In this episode, we talk about the highs and lows of his career. My dad called me up and he told me that he'd watched Leverage Juice and it was one of the most embarrassing things he'd ever seen <laughs> and that I should have a word with my agent the following day and maybe be a little bit more like forthright about what is a good and um, bad uh, opportunity for me to do. And I remember that being quite a seminal moment in terms of me going, OK, maybe I need to be a little bit more selective. And we discuss what it's really like making a TV show with a parent and working on his American accent. Jack Whitehall, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Hi, Kellyanne, how are you? I'm fine. You look very lovely in your plush chair. <laughs> very nice, isn't it? No expense spared with Apple. Yeah, I was going to say, big budget. Yeah, um, this on a BBC3 junket. Yeah, never, but you Be know. Be lucky to get a chair. <laughs> Plastic fold out. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's start with, not here, but at home, what is the view from your sofa? The view from my sofa at home? Yeah, so talk me through your telly setup. Okay, we're actually about to change it quite radically because when I first moved into the house, we got a sofa that just wasn't practical but like, looked nice in the space. And I listened <laughs> to the uh, interior designer and she said, no, you don't want like an L-shaped sofa. You want a sofa sort of up against the wall to make the most of the space. But it's now, so it means you've got a sofa that doesn't face the television. So if I'm looking at my sofa, it's like I have to watch all of my TV in my peripheral vision or just stare out into the garden, which just makes no practical sense at all. It's also not very comfortable. Anyway, that's yeah. getting binned because Roxy, my girlfriend, has now started nesting. And I think she's taken a look at a lot of the furniture and the feng shui and she's gone, this is going to change now. And so we're currently in this... A radical period of transition from uh, sort of bachelor pad to uh, family home. But currently, my view that. from the sofa is a television to my side. Comfort first. Comfort above all, I would say. Who controls the remote in your household? Um, mm, probably me, because she's not as, as tech-savvy as I am. But then I'm really not tech-savvy at all. I just know how to work this very complicated remote, which we have. Um, we've got one of those like, you know, setups where there's every single streaming subscription and Sky yeah. and all of these other things. And it's meant to all go through one remote. But I mean, 
There's basically a guy who lives in Devon that helped me put in the system. I, I swear I speak to him more than any of my friends or family. Every single week I'm calling him, I don't know how it works. It stopped working again. What do I do? And then he's got some system where remotely he can like turn off all of my televisions and turn them back on again. So there's a lot of me like with the remote in one hand, phone on the other going, Josh, Josh, please, how does it work? <laughs> Roxy needs to so watch Love Island trust. and she's getting really touchy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to watch on TV? What do you enjoy? Is it a lot of comedy? Uh, I do like, yeah, I mean, I do like watching, I do like watching comedy, but it is a little bit of a busman's holiday, I think, if you're watching, mm. like, stand-up. I like, I mean, I'm really bad in terms of just, like, watching a little bit of a special just to sort of get a flavour of it. Um, but, you know, I yeah, I do try to to watch a, a fair amount of stand-up and, and sitcoms. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like, I mean... What is she really likes like true crimes. There's a lot of true crime documentaries and like anything with a bit of a serial killer or a murderer. She's all over that. Mainly like really late at night before we're about to go to bed, and then we have to watch it. And then she doesn't sleep throughout the whole night and wakes up the following morning and is like, "Oh my god, I had such bad nightmares last night." I was like, "Yeah, I wonder why <laughs> we literally <laughs> fell asleep to the Connecticut Cannibal." And I don't know whether that's the best thing to watch before you go to bed. No, it's definitely not. I was going to ask, do you have a snack and drink of choice whilst watching telly? And in that moment, I envisioned cheese because that's also supposed to give you terrible nightmares. Yeah, a fair amount of cheese. A lot of, like, um, popcorn as well. Um, yeah, just crisp, standard okay. stuff, really. I mean, she's diabetic as well, so you have to be quite careful with your... Sometimes there's lots of treats because she's like... But you have to be quite careful with what you're chucking down your throat. Otherwise, you could be end up in A&E. Not where you want. True crime, A&E, cheese. Okay, too much. Now, look, this podcast is very kitchen sink. We're going to go a little bit of everywhere. So let's rewind time and take it back to your childhood. What's your first ever TV memory? My first ever TV memory is probably my mum watching Coronation Street. She loved Corrie so much. And I think... I mean, I'm not a big Corey aficionado, but I think she, when I was growing up, was like the late 90s, early noughties, which I think was like a heyday for Coronation Street. Like really good characters. Wasn't mm. it when, when like Sally Wainwright used to write on it? And like, it was like the storylines were really good. And it was like, like the peak era for Coronation Street. It was like Curly Watts, uh, Vera and Jack Duckworth. Wow, I see, I remember a lot of it. Um, yeah. So Ashley... Um, he was the butcher, wasn't he? So yeah, Deirdreanne Rashid. Do you remember when she was on trial for murder and it was actually the husband, Richard? See, see, it's all flooding back to me. Like I remember all of these yeah. storylines. Soaps are instrumental, especially I think as a young watcher because you see a lot of stuff that you thought is very much taboo. Was TV watching a family affair? Yeah, I mean, my dad used to watch quite impenetrable television to a child. So things like <laughs> the Antiques Roadshow and lots of like Newsnight. But then I guess some things that like Bremner Bird and Fortune and stuff like that, which when I was younger, I didn't really understand, but kind of like, no, have I got news for you and stuff like that, that I kind of liked the idea of it. And as I got a little bit older and began to understand it a bit more, you know, those were the kind mm. of things that I would start watching and would get me interested in, in comedy. Where did that start for you in terms of thinking about it as a viable career option? Probably not until I went to the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, a lot of the stuff I used to watch on with my mum mum and dad was things like Norman Wisdom and 
Lauren Hardy, which felt very hilarious, but not, you know, not particularly relatable or retainable. And then I went to Edinburgh Festival and started watching stand-up comedians and seeing younger people up on stage doing stand-up and uh, realising that it could possibly be a career path for me. So that was when I first, yeah, began to think of it as something that I might want to do when I left school. How did you find it going to the Fringe for the first time? I loved it. I was completely enamoured by it. And I, I saw like a really eclectic mix of shows. I remember seeing like uh, a gay cabaret act called Topping and Butch with my friend's mum. And they were all in like like spandex sort of, I don't know what you would call them, like, like almost like gimp suits. <laughs> and they, they played funny songs and they were hilarious and it was so rude. And, like, really, really, like, smutty. And I was watching that with my friend's mum, who was quite prim and proper, and had just read, like, a good review in some newspaper and bought tickets on a whim and had no idea what she was letting herself into. And it was, like, a sort of late-night cabaret show. I saw Michael McIntyre perform to 200 people in a tiny little venue at the Pleasance. I saw, like, students that were a couple of years older than me doing sketch shows and performing in, you know a professional theatre and, like, seeing stuff like that, mm. I was like, wow, I could, probably could do that if they can do this. Was it, like, duck to water? Uh, n well, yeah. I mean, I wasn't very good at the beginning. <laughs> there was a lot of performing in uh, open mic competitions mm. and going to pubs and doing five, ten-minute sets. They're harder, probably, than the longer ones. Yeah, and also back then, I was like, I didn't really know what I was doing. No one knows who you are. Like, it's not, you're set up to fail. Like the stuff that I do now is so much easier. Everyone's come to see me. They've bought a ticket. They're invested in it. Yeah. They're like, they they want to have a good time, and they they sort of know your shtick, and so it's so yeah. much easier. But yeah, back then it was definitely a lot harder. I think Edinburgh is one of those that when I speak to comedians, a lot of the time they feel like that was very important for the start of their career, and an and another part of making it, I guess, as a comedian or getting your name out is panel shows, yeah. um, of which you have appeared on many. I spoke to Sarah Pascoe not that long ago, and she said that when she hears Mock the Week's theme tune, she still gets palpitations because she's like, I'm back in the studio, and I'm like, ah, someone's going to ask me about a politician. I don't bloody know. Is there anything that sticks with you from panel shows, but also how did it shape you as a comedian? Yeah, those panel shows were huge, and I remember that being like such a such a kind of laser-focused ambition for me when I first started was to get onto all of those panel shows and to do them all and, you know, like Mot the Week was famously very cutthroat and you'd have to go on and you'd need quite sharp elbows to get your bit in. But again, it was like a great show, really well produced and loads of people watched it and it felt like culturally significant at the time and you'd do it and it would really help like build your profile and, and you know, get bums on seats when you then wanted to go out and tour and... Shows like Would I Lie to You, I think, the, is one of the best panel shows on television and has been so long-lasting because it's such a, like, watertight format. And I think that the, ultimately the thing with those panel shows is it's fun to go on and be a guest on them. But what really makes them, like, the, the, the good ones special is that they are almost like a bit of a sitcom themselves and you have, like, your various characters. And Mot the Beat was at its best when it had Frankie and Russell and... Dara and Hugh and it was like this really well balanced like little family and and I think the same is true with Would I Lie to You and Have I Got News For You um, and so for me like it was amazing when I finally got that gig on League of Their Own and then it sort of became a little bit like a sitcom in and of itself with James and me and 
Freddie and Jamie and 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 once I'd settled into doing that like I felt like I was I'd found a little bit of a home within that world and I had mm. such a riot doing that show um and uh ended up you know doing this sort of spin-off show as well where we we travel around the world doing ridiculous kind of tasks and stuff but yeah I think when I was just like a sort of gun for hire and popping up on the end of the the desk every now and again it was it was quite difficult but then again it's like <laughs> as soon as people yeah begin to sort of understand you and and know what your like persona is then it's much easier to sort of slot into something and 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 make it your own looking back like comedy is one of those careers where it's it's up down you've got people that are in out and it and it is tumultuous it's an ever-changing roster of people that you see on these panel shows and look you started out you and made a name for yourself incredibly young and i wonder now if you look back it's very easy with the power of hindsight to think, oh, yeah, you know, Jack Whitehall's been in TV for 13 years and had a very successful career. But I guess along the way, there must be highs and lows. And I wonder if there was any point where you thought maybe this isn't going to work or I need to work a bit harder or I need to do less or I need to venture into this, you know, be it TV or film. Yeah, there's been a few moments where there was a... <laughs> Like I would say yes to everything basically when I first started out and was just desperate to be on TV and be on these shows um, and didn't think much beyond that. And then I remember there being one panel show that I went on, which was Celebrity Juice, which was a great show, but you know, it was not a great one to go on as a comedian because you're basically just fodder. And uh, I went on and I didn't really give a great account of myself and sort of sat there in silence and had the piss taken out of me a couple of times and didn't really contribute much. And then I remember my dad watched it and I was doing a gig in Milton Keynes and whoever it was that was meant to give me a lift at the station bailed. So I ended up in like a lay-by in Milton Keynes trying to get a cab uh, to get me back to get the last train. And then I, I think the last train left and I was stuck in Milton Keynes. And so I was trying to find like a premier in that I could stay with. And as I was going through that, my dad called me up and he told me that he'd watched Celebrity Juice and it was one of the most embarrassing things he'd ever seen <laughs> and that I should have a word with my agent the following day and maybe be a little bit more like forthright about what is a good and um, bad uh, opportunity for me to do. And I remember that being quite a seminal moment in terms of me going, okay, maybe I need to be a little bit more selective <laughs> otherwise... I might end up back on a lay-by in Milton Keynes. Um, so that, and then also with League of Their Own, like, I love doing it, but I'm like, they definitely reached a point where I was like, how long can I go around being like, you know, strapped up to a giant dartboard and having inflatable um, balls chucked at my head by Freddie Flintoff and debagged yeah. in front of various sporting heroes. It didn't feel like it was necessarily the, the play for a long-lasting and evolving career. Your father, Michael, big Radio Times favourite. And I think I think the nations, you know, his demeanour is very impenetrable. And I think that's very charming for a lot of us. But you've spoken widely about kind of wanting to, in some ways, impress him. Both of your parents were in the creative industry in inverted commas. How did they feel about you first venturing into the arts? Well, I think they were just very keen that I didn't become an actor because my dad had represented lots of actors and he'd represented lots that have been in work, but a lot that had also been out of work. So he was very keen to steer me away from like going to drama school or, um, you know, just being an actor. He really wanted me to have something to fall back on. So he was very keen that I go to university and get a degree. But I mean, I went to Manchester to get a history of art degree. Like that was going to be any use in the real world. 
And I went there and did like six months and then ended up doing stand-up, which is an even more cutthroat um, industry than acting. So, uh, yeah, it was sort of a roundabout way of getting around uh, his dictate that I couldn't be an actor. Um, And my mum, I think, she was a little bit more encouraging of it. I think she knew because she'd been an actor and knew that once you're bitten that you, by the bug, it's like impossible to sort of quit. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, she was, I think, a little bit more, you know, open-minded to the idea of me picking acting as a as a career. You said in previous interviews about, in inverted commas again, your words, not mine, your Nepo baby audition for yeah. Harry Potter, which didn't go, perhaps. Well, you, you didn't get it. I don't think that's a spoiler. But you did eventually break into or start doing acting and you were on Channel 4's Fresh Meat. You've written and starred in Bad Education. And I wonder, with that, how easy is it to sidestep from comedy into acting? And and were there any kind of apprehensions that you had about that step? Yeah, I think so. I think, especially in England, I think we quite like people to stay in their lane a bit. So it is sometimes quite hard to, to make that transition. Um, I've certainly found initially it was quite hard to, you know, get cast in things because I was just seen as this sort of like personality from panel shows and entertainment stuff. And so, yeah, I was like, I think the only way I'm going to get a part uh, is to write one. So I started writing Bad Education. And then as I'd finished writing it, I auditioned for Fresh Meat and got cast in that part. So actually it was a complete waste of time. I could have just held my nerve and been patient but (laughs) I ended up doing two things but yeah I think it is it is hard um sometimes just because I mean and I don't I I get why it's hard as well because like you know as an actor sometimes mystery is a good thing to have and you don't want to know everything about the person that you're watching because it's helpful because you can then lose yourself in a performance of theirs and because I in the UK in particular have been on so much stuff and people know I've traded on my life and personality for so long it is quite difficult um, to get people to see you in a different light because they know you so well and have seen you on so many kind of shows and chat shows and panel shows and podcasts and whatnot so I think uh, that's why yeah it's it was possibly a little bit harder it's it's just a hard it's a hard balance to strike especially with stand-up it's Mm -hmm. like stand-up it has to be so personal and you need to like give so much of yourself and um it's a little bit of a trade-off that you have to make um yeah getting cast in anything where I'm not basically playing a version of myself like that's been the that's been the challenge uh yeah and I'm really keen to try to find more challenging parts and to do more acting in comedy but also in drama you know and and find find roles that surprise people but those are much harder to get if you know you you sort of establish yourself in 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 one particular lane and people are used to seeing you sort of playing various different heightened incarnations yeah. of yourself is that why you went over to america and i know lots of people do it but was that perhaps part of the reason just to kind of get away from the british scene yeah i mean not particularly there wasn't a, like a conscious conscious choice to do to do that but i mean i don't know it, it does it may be there's a little bit more of a blank slate over here just because I, I think I'm considerably less well-known over here. So people haven't got that like sort of prior history of of, of me. And so <laughs> I feel like I probably stand a better chance of landing that part where I'm doing something that's a little bit more surprising over here that maybe the, the runway is a bit shorter in, 
in England for it. But then again, I know I know what will happen. I'll come over here and I'll be like slogging away trying to get that that sort of needle moving part and and then I'll then I'll get it in England and I'll be like, Why well, I didn't even need to bother coming because you've been in London in the pub. The most beautiful pubs in London, are there not? Which is your favourite? Um, I like a place called the Quiet Night Inn in West London, near my house. Guinness on Very tap, nice. beer garden, ideal. Ideal. Well, I'm North London gal, you won't catch me in West London, so sorry. How do you deal with criticism and negative reviews? Because like you say, stand-up, you have put so much of yourself on the line. And then I wonder, especially with acting and stuff, I know it's separate, but perhaps that all feeds into one space in your head. And I think people have an idea of comedians as being uh, a more thick-skinned. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's hard, really. I mean, with comedy, the, the downside of a negative review with comedy is that it feels like it's an attack on you because you're literally presenting mm. your personality and it almost feels like character assassination. But then yeah. again, the advantage with comedy, I had some slightly dodgy reviews for my current show and in the past I've let it, you know, it, it, does, it, it, it it's affected me a lot more. This time it was literally 24 hours of feeling a little bit a, a, a little bit upset and then I was on stage the following night and in front of an audience and it was sold out and I got a standing ovation at the end of it and I was like, oh, I feel fine. <laughs> and then you're, and you're straight back into it because you're like, you're doing mm. your show and I'm so lucky that I've got to a, a, a level where, I mean, and no one reads them and they're just coming to see the show regardless. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, because <laughs> if it was just done on the reviews, then I probably wouldn't sell as many tickets. But <laughs> it, you've got that you've got that release of being able to get back out there and do it and be with your audience and remember why you're doing it. With If you've done, mm. like, if you've been on set for months and then you've done it and it's been edited and then it's gone out, and then it gets a bad review. There's, it's not like you can then just like dive straight back into it like that. I, I find those those ones a little bit more like soul crushing. But then again, like if it, if the audience have a good reaction to it, and you know, it, like that's not necessarily why you're doing it. I mean, with some things mm. you want like that critical acclaim, but I mean, there's certain things where if if you're getting a really good re positive response from the audience then again it sort of insulates you from it but you know the worst is if you get bad reviews and the audience hate it and everyone on twitter is going this is crap and you've spent like months and months and months filming it and then you're like oh my god well that was a bit of my life that I'm never going to get back but then you could just you know do a series with Apple, which would be great, and then some more filming, and then you're bada bing, bada bong, everyone's on to the next Jack Whitehall that you seem to be absolutely everywhere. You have an incredible work ethic. Before we come on to talk about the after party, I just want to go back to ask one question, which is, what is it like working with a parent? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's good. It's, it's lovely just to be able to spend time with them and to like, have that kind of professional experience with them is, is really cool and nice and I wouldn't see as much of them were I not to be doing it that yeah. I mean there is an added level of stress to it because there is also that like sort of slightly lack of a professional relationship with them because they're your parents and the way you talk to each other is slightly different to how you might talk <laughs> to an, a regular colleague and some of their uh, foibles can become a little irksome uh, when you're trying to like create something and get it done and you know, 
certain members of your family want to be finished filming at four o'clock and need an hour off at lunch and like insist on having a glass of wine which you know is going to make them much less attentive for the three hours that they're going to give you in the afternoon to get the rest of the shooting day not mentioning any names wonder who you could be talking about let's um let's come on to talk about the after party so you play sebastian who is for listeners at home, this kind of smarmy, traditional, read, very posh Englishman, this kind of archetype of old money, or so we so we believe. There are some incredible British insults throughout, and I wondered if they were all scripted or if you had the chance to improvise some of them. I was wondering if some of them were yours. Yeah, a lot of the insults were, because <laughs> that became a, a bit of a runner. Like, I'd, I did it in one of the scenes with Paul, and there was a lot of improv on set and Chris really encourages the improvisational element of it. And, you know, a lot of those other actors are some of the, like, Zach Woods is one of the best improvisers I've ever worked with. He's incredible. So you really feel like, I don't know, like you want to up your game. And so then it just became a almost like a bit of a game within itself of, like, how many obscure and bizarre, like, English insults I could hurl at people and, and see what I could get to make them laugh behind the monitor <laughs> uh so yeah that that was quite a that, that was sort of came came naturally just from doing a little bit of improv and realizing that that was a thing that people seemed to enjoy did you have a particular favorite that you managed to shoehorn in there um i can't actually i can't actually remember <laughs> i don't i can't remember <laughs> what ended up in there in in the end but i remember like going quite obscure and then having to explain to everyone what what some of the things meant. We all know that there's the clip of um, you on the Graham Norton show with the wonderful Olivia Colman, oh, yeah, which yeah. doesn't realise that you're doing an American accent. And I wondered if there were any apprehensions or if you've ever had apprehensions about doing an American accent again after that clip. Uh, I mean, not specifically from <laughs> from that clip, but I mean, like, I'd, yeah, I mean, <laughs> certainly it, it does, uh, it's an added, like, sort of complication when you're when you're doing a role if you're having to do it in an accent okay the first series very successful but whodunits in general seem to be having a massive revival why do you think we're so obsessed with that genre and did you know who done it from the outset i always wonder if they keep that gem back no, we we did know who did it. I didn't when I read the scripts. I had no inclination as to who it was going to be. I'm not very good when I watch who done it of ever figuring out who it's going to be. So I'm the perfect audience member for them. Um, but yeah, they are so popular, um, and they're definitely having a sort of revival at the moment. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've always loved watching them. And again, talking about like TV habits from growing up, there was a lot of Poirot in our house and. Agatha Christie and, and things like that. So Midsummer Murders, another classic. So yeah, I loved all of those kind of whodunits and detective series. So it was really fun to be to be a part of one. And this has a massive cast, a very, very starry cast. So was there anyone you were particularly excited to work with or work alongside? Well, really looking forward to working with Paul Walter Hauser, who I'd met before and have sort of we have we share an agent and have lots of mutual friends. Weirdly, we're both quite into wrestling so we share this common interest which is how we sort of bonded and we'd met on on twitter because we'd been chatting about wrestling which is quite unusual uh anyway i'd been really looking forward to working with him in something at some point and then when this came along uh it was great to get to sort of share the screen with him uh and yeah i mean it's just yeah it's such a stacked cast so 
I'd met Tiffany a couple of times and done stand-up with her, and she'd always been someone that I thought was hilarious. And so um, it was great to, to, to sort of get the opportunity to work with her. And But what was so nice as well is that, like, you know, you, you had scenes with everyone, and in each different episode you'd have bits to do with each member of the cast, and that also kept it quite fun and quite fresh that you got to sort of have your moment with everyone um and i think i only had one scene with like ken but it was one of the funniest things that we shot over the entire shoot and so yeah i was really lucky to to get to get the chance to sort of you know have a little bit bit of fun with all of them thank you so much for joining me on the radio times podcast thanks very much if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with comedian Sarah Pascoe, in which she reveals which panel show theme tune still makes her nervous, or my chat with Miriam Margulies, in which we discuss speaking your mind and why you should never gift someone a candle. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. Listener.